Well, it's a new year, and I have to say thank you for tuning in to Slow Baja. Um, first week of January, and I am already on the road for a two-week dirt drive with the guys over at Nora, Eliseo Garcia, and Pepe Giza. I had them on the show way, 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 way back at the beginning, and I can't uh, wait to uh, see Baja with those guys who uh, live there and know it uh, and have planned the, the last 10 years of the Nora Roots, so we're going to see some great stuff, and I can't wait to share it with you down the road, the dirt road. Um, but for today, I am bringing you a conversation that I had with Graham McIntosh, which I broadcast uh, early last year. Graham is such a delightful personality, and I've been reading his subsequent books following up to um, Into a Desert Place, which we discuss in this podcast. But Graham is such a delight that I hope you listen to the podcast. If you've heard it already, I hope you listen to it again. He's really a treat, and uh, you should um, enjoy this one. I'm I, do. <laughs> um, and thanks for all of you who waited through the uh, slow Baja sold outs on this, that, and the other thing. The supply chain thing is real. Holy Toledo, man, just can't get the stuff made. I've got some hats in production now, and I uh, got in with my uh, embroidery shop and looked through all of their in-stock stuff. So I've got some stuff in the store right now that once it's gone, you may never see it again, but it's pretty cool. I've got some flex fits in gray and black, make you look like an undercover cop. I've got a bright pink, it's beautiful, a bright pink trucker's hats. And I don't know if I'll be able to get those ever again. So if you like bright pink, jump on it. There are three new uh, knit hats in stock, uh, a beautiful olive, a navy, and a lined charcoal in case you're uh, going someplace super cold. So that's all new in the uh, Slow Baja store at slowbaja.com. Uh, stickers are back in stock. And uh, anyways, I just want to say thanks to those of you who made a donation. I don't have your names in front of me today. I'll catch you next week. But um, Holly Michaels, she slid an entire party tray of tacos in and said, thanks. I've never been to Baja, but I have an overwhelming urge to go now, and it's all your fault. So Holly Michaels, you're the best. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll be back with the new show next week. Cheers. Hey, this is Michael Emery. Thanks for tuning into the Slow Baja. This podcast is powered by Tequila Fortaleza, handmade in small batches, and hands down, my favorite tequila. Hey, I want to tell you about your new must-have accessory for your next Baja trip. Benchmark Maps has released a beautiful, beautiful Baja California Road and Recreation Atlas. It's a 72-page large format book of detailed maps and recreation guides that makes the perfect planning tool for exploring Baja. Pick yours up at benchmarkmaps.com. Graham, say hello. So, hi. And just, uh, you can see my car because I left the windows open. So, yes. it saved me turning around occasually. You, feel free to sit <laughs> no, next to no, me. No, I got a bottle of tequila in there <laughs> and my cell phone. So. I'm, I'm, it's 50 <laughs> yards over your shoulder and I'm keeping an eye on it. So, it's a beautiful morning here in sunny San Diego. I'm sitting down outdoors. What What's the name of this park, Graham? Marion Bear. Marion Bear. We're at Marion Bear Park in San Diego, North County, and I'm sitting down with Graham McIntosh. I've been chasing him around for about a year, and here we are. He wanted to let me get a little better at my game before he sat down with me, but Graham, I'm just <laughs> delighted that you made some time for me, so say oh, hello. good morning. No problem. Enjoying it. Well, Graham and I have been chatting just a little bit about um, 
today's uh, today's show. And Graham's done so much in Baja that uh, I feel like we just are going to try and talk about your walk in 1983. The I've got it sitting right here into a desert place, and I, I'm hoping that you can come back to the show in the future and we can work our way through the rest of your books you've got quite an extensive collection and maybe we'll just i'll just have you go through it now well if i'm still alive i'll be really happy to <laughs> i'll you see never you next week adventuring <laughs> i'm going to use it as an excuse to get down to see you in uh, in baja next week so graham take oh. us take us through you started with into a desert place and when did that come out that came out in 1988 88 and so the trip was, uh, was 83 85 it was over two years and I was basically walking around the coast of Baja. Um, I came from England. I hardly knew any Spanish. I hardly knew what the desert was. But it seemed like a good idea that as a couch potato, I could come over and uh, walk around Baja and write this book. Uh, and the reason I did it was I'd been to Baja once before and twice before. And every time I just thought, this place is so lovely and so incredible. I wanted to go back and uh, have that experience. I tried to persuade my girlfriend at the time to come with me and spend some time and write a book. She thought I was totally crazy, got rid of me real quick. <laughs> and I thought if I'm gonna do it, I gotta do it alone, I gotta do it myself. Well, take me back to your, your childhood. I mean, people in the States who live outside of Southern California hardly know about Baja, but take take me back to your childhood in England. Are you, are you originally from Scotland? Is that, do I have that no, right? No, my, my father is Scottish, okay. uh, hence the name, Macintosh. All right. But my mother is Irish. and um, So growing uh, up in England is uh, a natural. Uh, I grew up in England. <laughs> I grew up in, in London. So Okay. Yeah, so I, I, th I think of myself as, uh, well, it's hard to say, but as a Scottish, Irish, English person. <laughs> And so how did, how, tell me a little bit about your childhood, but then tell me, how, how did Baja come into your life? Well, uh, I was born in London. Um, my father was a soldier in the, in the Second World War, and uh, I remember growing up playing around bomb sites and um, all that kind of stuff in London. Inner city kid, amazed I survived my first five years. But uh, later on, I settled down to become a couch potato when I moved out of London and um, just didn't go abroad. I was the kind of guy who was happiest in a pub or watching TV and um, wanted no risks in my life, no danger. And uh, it was like that all through college. And then my neighbors, I lived in Sheffield at the time, I was at university in Sheffield, and my next door neighbors moved to Los Angeles. His father was an American citizen, so he had the right to go over there and start a new life. Well, I, I was real good friends with my neighbors, and they just said, come over to Los Angeles and uh, have an adventure, you know, and you're very welcome to stay with us. So I took them up on that. And while I was there, I hitched uh, across America. I had, I had all kinds of great experiences. And then I thought, well, Amer um, Baja is real close. It's only down the freeway from Los Angeles, so why don't I just go to Mexico and uh, spend a day there and, you know, satisfy that curiosity. Well, I went to Tijuana. I, I remember looking at a wall map. And like you said, you know, n n I'd never even seen Baja. I'd never even thought about there was this peninsula on, the, on that side of Mexico, on the Pacific side. And I, I, I was going to go to, you know, so, somewhere down on the mainland just to, to visit and 
I thought, well, look at this peninsula, it looks really interesting. And I remember I went to Ensenada, I took the bus, I jumped on a bus, and I spent my birthday in Ensenada. And it was really emotional. I thought, wow, this is uh, um, just unbelievable that I've been happy doing this and everybody I've met has been great. So I decided to hitch my way south to see how far I'd get. Well, I got down to Cabo San Lucas, and I had the most amazing time. I was getting rides in aeroplanes. I was going out fishing, you know, with all the tourists. And I thought, this does not happen in London. <laughs> this is really amazing. And the road's empty. The desert's incredible. And that's when I started to feel this. I, I belong here. This is a really unusual experience. You know, it was a, like a religious experience. And I, I couldn't forget it. I went back to England and I was haunted by the, this crazy idea that I was going to write a book about Baja. It was like a premonition. So that's, I get that. And I, it sounds like you have an obsessive tendency, like this got in you. And I just didn't know how and where. And so that, that's, that's amazing. So one thing that you, you've written that I've laughed at a lot is I said, you've, I'm going to quote you here. I've never been particularly good at anything except catering to my own comfort and safety. So expand on that. Now you've been bitten by this peninsula, but it's a hostile place. It's, right. It's, you know, when you come from a, a very densely populated place like England, yeah. where you're more likely to freeze than you are to, to die of wash thirst. wash away in, or, in the rain. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, you're not going to step on a rattlesnake in, in no. downtown London. How did you make that leap? It, it was it was a surprise for me um, to find scorpions. I, I remember once I was pulling on my swimming trunks on my first visit to Baja, and I looked down as I'm pulling them up, and there's a scorpion inside the swimming inside trunks. trunks. And I thought, oh my god, I love this place. <laughs> this is really interesting. And I saw a rattlesnake. I saw marlin. Um, just uh, it was one thing after another that should have put me off should have brought me to my senses and thought I'm gonna get out of here real quick but it had the opposite effect I just thought this is really fascinating and it opened my eyes I thought I got to be a little bit careful you know it's not like walking off the sidewalk looking the wrong way you gotta be real careful <laughs> pulling on your swimming trunks or whatever but um, it really appealed to me and I just thought this is gonna be interesting if I live through this it's gonna make an interesting story so uh, eventually, um, I, I do remember the, the moment when I knew I was going to do it. I was in Bahia de Los Angeles, and I climbed to the top of a, a hill there, and I was looking out over the Sea of Cortez and the emptiness and the islands. And I remember thinking to myself, um, uh, you know, what is out there? The, the, there's nothing out there. It's really, really beautiful. And I, I remember saying, if I'm really being called, to do this, I need to be shown a sign, you know, I need some confirmation that I'm meant to do this. And I went back to England and I remember thinking, you know, am I, am I really going to be walking around Baja, surviving off the sea in the desert, doing really crazy stuff? And I, I remember I bought my first backpack and I was walking across the moors in, in Yorkshire. And I remember saying, Lord, if I'm being sent to do this, if I'm being called, show me a sign and as i said that all these sheep came walking across the hills going or saying bah bah <laughs> so, so when i heard that i thought this is that that's the moment 
that's the confirmation that I'm going to do this. So uh, definitely a religious experience. Had you had any experience with religion before? No, <laughs> I was totally so religiously uh, agnostic. Yeah. And had you had any experience with sheep and uh, what they had, no, that I they had speak no, Spanish no and say Baja? Speaking to me, uh, this this was uh, <laughs> I was turned on to a new way of thinking, oh, and that's sorry. what Into a Desert Place is about. It's about leaving behind that rational scientific view of the world that we you know we in the West are prone to, and seeing a, a whole different experience. But well, I don't want I don't want to dwell too much on your life in England before you left. You've already said that it cost you a girlfriend, but you had a job. You were you were post collegiate working adult. Uh, I was teaching. Yeah. 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 Can you talk a little bit about what you were teaching? Because I think that's an interesting well, thing I, as well. I, I ended up teaching. Well, I was teaching social sciences, but I was put in charge of a course for unemployed teenagers at the time. And, you know, we were doing things like taking them out, getting them jobs as mechanics and all this kind of stuff, giving them work experience. And I remember I was looking at these kids and I was thinking, you know, I'd, I'd come back from Baja on, a, on my trips and I was thinking these kids have no idea what they could do with their lives. If they can't find a job, they're going to hang around on the street corner and just, you know, waste their time. And I remember I was trying to persuade them if you can't find a job, go to France. It's only 20 minutes away, well, maybe an hour away on the ferry, and uh, go and work your way around Europe. Have an experience, learn some languages, and do something to enhance your life. They couldn't see it. Their, their, their whole mentality was, uh, you know, oh, I, I, I'm a victim. I can't do it. Um, you know, life has nothing for me. I'm unemployed. And I remember that was another motivation that I'm going to. Because I'm a couch potato, or I was, I'm going to walk around Baja and prove to them that with no money, you can have this wonderful experience. And that's what I did. I took off and I was living off uh, basically what I could catch and uh, what I could find in the desert, distilling my own water when necessary. And uh, that became one of my motivations to inspire those kids that I was teaching. So I, I left my course to say goodbye to them and gave my notice. and. Everyone thought I was crazy. They couldn't understand what I was doing, but that was part of that experience. That uh, and, and you didn't have personal wealth. You didn't have, didn't have the ability wealth. to fund this. This uh, I, I was benevolent in sponsors. Time, yeah, and yeah. so exactly. So you you had little. Well, I remember the, the trip lasted uh, two years. At one stage, I had thirty dollars, and I made that last about four months. And in between, I was catching fish and eating cactus and whatever I could do to stay alive. Well, we're 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 going to skip over uh, all the the rigmarole that you went through to I think prove to yourself as much to prove to others that you were going to do this. So you had some newspaper articles written about you that helped you get some gear, but basically you were scraping up. Um, whatever you could to make this happen for as little as you could and you didn't have the funds to even you know buy tents or boots or what have you no that was all on sponsorship i had to go in and persuade managers of stores to lend me this stuff and you look like easy. such an adventurer it just must have been a natural right <laughs> yeah they asked what's your experience it's none exactly <laughs> well and, and that, that's something that i i really think is uh, interesting much of this boils down to you saying if i can do it who am I? If I can do it, anybody can do this. Which sounds awful. Why don't they? Yeah, it sounds awfully trite and hackneyed, but 
that was really what I was trying to prove because of my teaching experience and uh, it brought me a lot of fame in England. When I was planning the trip, out of the blue I was invited to do radio programs, television, the BBC, everything and I just thought oh my god this is this is really taking off and it was thanks to that publicity that I managed to get all the equipment I needed. And it must have done something for your own psyche as well. This, there's, there's a snowball effect to say that I'm doing this and these other people now believe in me, so I better do it. Well, that, that's true. And I got to the point where I thought, well, so many people think I'm going to do this. I better at least do it or die, one of the two. Well, let's touch on that for a minute. How about, <laughs> how about your mom? She was really worried oh, about that. Oh, she, she could not believe what had happened. This very normal, sensible boy suddenly decides he's going to do this. She could not understand it. And uh, my poor mother suffered terribly when, you know, she didn't hear from me for weeks at a time. And uh, obviously, I think she wanted to impress upon you that you could fail. It'd be okay if you failed and came home. You don't need right. to go die to, that to was say her, at least you That died. was her parting uh, greeting to me or parting comment to me when I left, that uh, you've got all this publicity, all these people expect you to do this, but they're going to forget you in a heartbeat if anything happens. But we'll never forget you. Come home for us. And I still get emotional thinking about that. No, honestly. And again, being a, a child of a World War II generation, you know, that's something. And so we're going to jump right into your your thoughts here, Graham. Um, there are no atheists in the trenches. Feeling a bit like a soldier about to go over the top to certain death, I knew exactly what that meant. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, again, it was, uh, I'd rather die than not do this. So even though I had cold feet, I was thinking I'm, I'm a redhead, I'm burning in the sun here. I'm the last person in the world who should be doing this. I can hardly pick up my pack. I'm only five foot six, and my pack weighed about 70 pounds at the time. I remember thinking, uh, you know, this is close to suicide, what I'm doing. And I just set off walking, and I thought, I'm going to take it day by day. And uh, eventually, two years later, I ended up having walked around the coast of Baja. Uh, before we get into that, I, I just I thought of something here. Um, and we'll take a quick break with this plane going over. Okay. <laughs> hey, you doing okay? Do you need a break? No, I'm doing great. Oh, you're great. Yeah, because the concentration's there. If, if we take a break, I'll no, probably exactly. lose it. <laughs> what? What was I talking about? <laughs> yeah. Tequila, was it? Yeah. Uh, <coughs> I did swallow a fly. I got a feeling in my throat. Yeah, it's like uh, looking down into that mass of swarming maggots uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, in the first the, fish the camp. The outhouse, yeah. <laughs> Well, I have some very terrible hotel water in here. Okay, because the alternative like, is my bottle of tequila. Yeah, nothing probably. like you've drank on your on your trip, but it is a little salty. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, San Francisco has really lovely tap water. Yeah. No oh, is that where it's from? No, that's oh. where I'm from. Oh, okay. This is from uh, my hotel in Pacific Beach. Oh, good. Uh, Graham, I'm, I'm wondering if you can remember your list of pros and cons that you wrote up before you left. I, did, uh, I haven't written them down. But I, I, I can more or less remember the, the challenges I faced, and I did write these down. Yeah, so I, take us through those, because we're on the, on the cusp of you stepping off the plane and the, the bus and getting to San Felipe, but just walk us through. You've already said a little bit, you know, five foot six, fair-skinned, red hair, you can barely pick up your pack. You wrote down some, some pros and some cons, and then you decided how you're going to 
work around those or attack those. I thought as long as I can write it down, then I can come up with a solution. And uh, first thing was I had no Spanish. I couldn't, I could hardly speak a word of Spanish. I knew my chili con carnes and that was probably it. (laughs) So I had to expand on my Spanish a bit. So I I, I thought, well, that's easy enough. I'll buy a book and, uh, you know, learn some. And um, the other thing was, you know, I, I wasn't fit. I mean, this is going back a little bit beyond because I had time to get fit. And I, I remember I signed up for a local soccer team, you know, in, in uh, England and uh, started weight training, all these things. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, it hasn't killed me so far. And that really helped. So when I did the trip, I could jump right into it and uh, feel like I'm going to, you know, at least try and make an effort to carry this pack. Um, I didn't know anything about desert survival when I decided I was going to do the trip or I knew very little about it. So I had to research stills, how that works, um, just what I could eat, what I couldn't eat, how dangerous the animals were and don't eat puffer fish and all this stuff. So I had a pretty good grounding um, in, in desert survival when I left. So anyway, I had had so many problems like that. I wrote down the solution uh, and I just tackled each problem. Uh, I had no money, so I remember getting everything I needed on sponsorship and uh, it it worked out. There was nothing to hold me back. I just, off I went and all I had to do was have the courage to pick up that pack and go. (laughs) And as you say, I started walking at San Felipe I thought I'll head south, see how far I got. My initial plan was to walk all the way to Cabo San Lucas on the Sea Cortez, but uh, I got to Bahia de Los Angeles. I set off in April, so I really got to, when I got to Bahia de Los Angeles uh, end of May, it was getting really toasty. So it was then I thought up the plan, okay, well, I'm gonna go over to the Pacific. I hadn't thought about this at the time, but it was too hot to walk on the Gulf. I remember one day it was 115 degrees. So I thought that's suicide, there's no way. So I went over to the Pacific where it was a nice cool 80 degrees and started walking south at Ensenada and uh, did did that. Gulf Pacific, Gulf Pacific as as the seasons changed. And this this did take a while, so you did have to adapt. <laughs> yeah. you know, your well, took, your took, plan may have not been to... It took uh, two years. I was in no hurry. I'd spend time in fish camps. Um, a couple of times I got asked if I'd house sit for people in Baja, and I ended up staying a month here and a month there. But uh, it, it, it all worked out. Gave me time to read and research and keep well, going. We're going to touch on um, that change when you started accepting some... Um, gifts some some kindness from the locals but we're gonna we're gonna jump into your statement of no major decisions when you're down just keep going for one week (laughs) that that was the initial goal i remember the first day was hell i i thought i cannot pick up my pack the heat's killing me Uh, i don't know what the hell these mexicans are talking about (laughs) i didn't you know there was a lot of reasons to give up in that first week in that first day and I remember I just thought, keep going, and we're, we're going to make a decision about this. And I, I knew if I could just keep going for a few days, um, I'd see this through one way or another. If it kills me, I'll see it through. But uh, those initial doubts, I had to get beyond. Well, how many days were you in? It wasn't very many, if I remember. How many days were you in when you staggered up to these fishermen 
you know, no food, no water, little Spanish, obviously. And you were t maybe, what, too, pride, too proud, too foolish? I don't know how you, would, how you would characterize it to ask for help. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, so how, was it a day or two days? It wasn't very long into your trip I, you, I think you met these guys. If it's the occasion I'm thinking of is when I was approaching Buf Punta Bufeo. Right. And uh, it was probably a week or more into the trip, hiking 10 miles a day or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, so you're, from... you're about dead a weekend. Yeah, and I remember I, I, was, I needed water. <laughs> and um, I can't remember if I was too embarrassed to ask for it or uh, I think I was. I was just thinking I'm not going to ask for it because it's, it's too embarrassing. And um, I kept going and then I immediately thought that was the craziest thing I've ever done in my life. You know, I, you could die out here without water. It was getting that hot. And luckily, I got to Punta Bufeo, and there were a bunch of tourists there, and I stayed there uh, several days um, being looked after. But the hospitality from everybody I met, gringos, Mexicans, the whole trip, it was so heartwarming, and I couldn't have done it without that kindness and hospitality. So and we're going to we're going to circle back to that because right. I think that's a recurring theme oh, in my it's a show. Big, a big part of the trip. Yeah, yeah. And I don't. I, I think people. I just encountered it last week. I was telling somebody about. Uh, oh yeah, you know, I go to Baja and I do this podcast and I drive my fifty-year-old truck. And he said, "What about the crime? What about the crime in Baja? Aren't you worried about the crime?" And I thought it's a crime that I can't get to Baja more often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my first thought. Right. You know? Well, I, I've been traveling to Baja since '79. Uh, so I don't know what that is. Eighty-two, sorry, forty-two yeah, years. Yeah, 40, not quite that 42 old. Forty-two years. Forty-two years, and I've never had a problem with anybody. If I had walked around California for forty-two years, I would be dead. I would have been murdered long ago. So maybe I, maybe. I do find Let's, it. Ironic. I hope not, but I think you may be right. Hey, um, I've got a note here. Water tumbling into the sea, in a moment of clumsiness, a comfortable situation had become a crisis. How, how many crises did you think you had? <laughs> oh, every day. Every day, every no day. really. There was something. It was either a rattlesnake or a scorpion, or in that case, just my own stupidity. I, I, I had plenty of water. I had three containers. And I remember I, I, I lost, I had a, a big bag of water and I dropped that and lost most of the water out of that bag. And then when I was reaching down for I think it was my my belt bottle which was my last resort and my first resort I kept it on my belt that fell out of its holster into the sea and then the cap came off that so that was pretty much ruined so suddenly I, I, I'd lost like two two gallons of water I thought if, if this had happened in the middle of nowhere it could have been fatal uh, even with my stills I, I couldn't make water fast enough um, in the heat when it was really hot to stay alive so uh, it was a big learning experience, and I thought very carefully about how, how I carried water after that. And I didn't use the plastic bags and the belt water bottles. I carried water in chlorine bottles because I could drop those, fall on them. <clears throat> I never had a broken bottle. And that so was those a, were just stout one-gallon plastic from jugs? The, from the pool store, yeah. yeah. I just washed them out really good, and they cost, I think it was 25 cents each. <laughs> And uh, they saw me through the trip. And anybody who sees the photographs, I'm, yeah, there's I'm carrying right here a, on the cover of the book. A, a gallon of water in one of those. I've probably got another one on my backpack. And um, so, yeah, I had three of those that uh, did great service. But pretty damn heavy. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you're carrying 70, 80 pounds around, and uh, it, would, it would be 80 pounds with all the water. Uh, it was really heavy, and it's like you, 100 yards at a time. And you, you were 130 pounds or something, right, when you started this? How, how much I was probably think? about 140, yeah. Oh, I'm just guessing. It's yeah, not bad. That's not a bad <laughs> guess, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you must have become really lean and sinewy and well, strong. It, it actually worked the other way. Oh, really? I bulked out. You know, I think as, as I got fitter, I was pretty skinny at first. But as I look at myself going through the trip, I can see like muscles growing and my chest is expanding and I'm obviously getting in better shape, as, as you can imagine. Well, I was just wondering if you had ever adapted sort of the, uh, the Chinese method of a, a stick with the two loads equally distributed if you had one gallon on one end and one gallon on the other and the stick over your shoulder was that a i tried did you try I every tried which way carrying the stick dragging it on the ground <laughs> and, and putting two gallons of water on that stick but everything was so impractical right you know you start getting these things wedged in rocks and dragging through the sand i, I thought there's no way i'm just going to carry uh, the water and hopefully it doesn't unbalance me which was a big danger and you needed one hand off often for the terrain well and yeah take photographs and everything yeah not not i mean this is the old film days not that i could take more than two or three photos a day a conica point and shoot as i recall right, after right. the minox went down to uh, right. water right with a self-timer yeah yeah wow hey do you wish you had joined us on the nora 500 well here's your chance it's double the mileage, double the fun, double the parties, double the dirt. It is the Nora Mexican 1000. We're going to drive by day. We're going to party by night. I'm pouring four delays of tequila. April 30th through May 6th, 2022, we're driving the entire peninsula. You don't want to miss out on this one. Again, if I can do it in my 1971 Toyota Land Cruiser, totally stock, you can do it in any modern 4x4. The Nora Mexican 1000 is the happiest race on earth. Check it out at Nora.com, N-O-R-R-A.com, or on Slow Baja. Here at Slow Baja, we can't wait to drive our old Land Cruiser south of the border. When we go, we'll be going with Baja Bound Insurance. Their website's fast and easy to use. Check them out at BajaBound.com. That's BajaBound.com, serving Mexico travelers since 1994. And let's uh, get back to it. I'm I'm okay. here with Slow Baja, sitting down with Graham McIntosh in a beautiful park in North County, San Diego. Birds flying and chirping and airplanes overhead and a slight breeze blowing. We're sitting in the shade and keeping an eye on Graham's car so that bottle of tequila doesn't get stolen. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to jump back into, into a desert place, Graham's 3,000-mile walk around the coast of Baja, California from 1983 to 1985. The book was published in 1988, correct? Correct. All right. And it was the winner, Graham McIntosh was the winner of the Adventurous Traveler of the Year Award. Which was a British award. Sounds very British. It was a big surprise for me because I was the biggest couch potato, most unadventurous person in the world. And I got nominated for that when I went back to England by a magazine editor. And big surprise to get a letter suddenly saying, you are the Adventurous Traveler of the Year come to the Savoy Hotel, meet the Duchess of Gloucester, and so on. Uh, uh, so that was a big bonus. Wow. Well, we're, gonna, we're going to uh, flip back from that moment of glory to this, um, which I think dovetails nicely. Apart, I'm quoting you again, Graham, apart from brief golden moments of peace and confidence, 
This adventure was going to be incessant anxiety with no certainty, no guarantees, no trails, no decent maps, no roads to follow, no guides to lead. I was a complete novice staking my life on my decisions. I had good reason to be worried. <laughs> it's coming back to me. I'd forgotten. That was fairly early on in the trip, and that was pretty much how I felt. I, I just thought I could make the wrong decision here, and uh, my life's over. So it was a great incentive. It's, uh, it's funny how energizing uh, fear and death is. <laughs> so, yeah, I remember those early days. I thought exactly that. As the trip went on, I was much more relaxed about it. Once you've survived about 100 days of doing this, it becomes normal. I was more worried about the day that I would finish it and go back to normal life and try and go back to traffic and work and that really scared me <laughs> so it must have yeah i was very happy doing the trip at the end so uh again we keep coming back to this on um on the slow baja podcast kindness of strangers the mexican who stops for you when you're broken down when an american goes by in their mm. comfortable motor home with right. the air conditioning blasting drinking a cold one probably um you were into a fish camp and uh, you really got a heaping dose of Mikasa as Sukasa. Right. That that was my my biggest memory of the locals. I mean, mostly uh, because I'm on the coast, I'm seeing remote villages and fish camps, as I call them. And I'd go out shark fishing with these guys. But I remember in in the whole trip, on the whole trip, I couldn't make one Mexican take one peso for all they did for me. And that, it was just like that tradition of hospitality was unbelievable. And I might have overplayed that in the book. You know, a lot of people look, look at the book and say, well, this guy was just mooching off the, the locals. But I wanted to give credit to all these people that helped me. And uh, that was a theme of the book. They would even say that out here, we are all brothers. And, you know, I really just almost brought tears to my eyes at times because I had nothing. I knew I couldn't give these guys anything. Well, you, uh, you said, uh, but I have no money to pay you back. Right. And your reply was, money? What do I want with money? I have what I need, and what is mine is yours. That I remember the fisherman who said that, yeah. And I mean, it's so simple, so yeah. powerful, and so unbelievable yeah. in modern society. And I would never have known that or experienced it, except that I'd, I did that walk. And uh, it was like every week I'd hit a fish camp, or sometimes more, and it was the same story all the way around Baja. And I, I recently kayaked um, down to La Paz, and I stopped at a couple of these fish camps. And I remember one I went to, they greeted me uh, as when they found out who I was you know they, they said oh uh, Pat O'Donnell which was a name I used at the time because Graham was yeah, something that they, they just get couldn't it. get no. out yeah so I called myself my other name is Donald so I called myself Pat O'Donnell and they all laughed at that and I'd forgotten but when these guys greeted me as Pat O'Donnell they had not forgotten after 40 years that's my, you may be with the grandkids of some of these folks right yeah the, I mean, a couple they, generations they introduced down me now. to their family and wonderful people they were just really really beautiful even 40 years later the ones i saw one guy possibly saved my life and i met his family and uh, they were telling me he was a fisherman in loretto and uh, 
uh, I went back to see him when I found out. And, but um, I think his photo's in my book. But uh, that was a big moment. Can and you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I was up in the mountains. Most be- people don't get to say the person who possibly saved my life. Right. And really mean it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot to give, but I gave, I gave this guy my filleting knife just as a thank you. But I was up in the mountains between uh, Loretto and La Paz, and there's a stretch uh, in the middle there that's really uh, challenging. And I remember I, I couldn't walk along the coast. Normally I'd try and walk on the rocks, right under the cliffs, and you can, you can do it for 95% of Bajas, no problem. You just wait for the tide and you can do it. But th- that stretch, the cliffs straight into the water, I had to climb inland. And when I climbed inland, it was getting hot. My water level was going down. I couldn't use my stills, which needed seawater. So I got into trouble. I got to the point where I was dizzy and on the verge of sunstroke. I knew I'd been pushing myself too hard. And I was desperately trying to get along. Uh, but I kept running into canyons that would go nowhere. And I, I knew this, this could get really serious. And it was at that point that this guy happened to leave his fish camp he was up in these mountains he was looking for his goats rounding up his goats and he found me (laughs) and uh, led me down to his uh, fish camp and it was that fish camp that I stayed for several days recovering I was on the verge I was in no shape to walk once I got down there and they, they looked after me again wouldn't take any money and that was the one when I kayaked by they they all knew me and they they still remembered me amazing I've got tears in my eyes right now just 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 hearing that. I mean, oh, and it was a great privilege for me to go back and meet that fisherman who was a young lad at the time. He was probably a teenager, and now he's sixty. Uh, <laughs> and to see him again and uh, compare photographs, it was, uh, and to give him the photographs from back in the eighties. Well. Ha- ha- it's hard for me to think about as I drive my old truck around and we stop for tacos and we have a cooler with us and, you know, it's like a modern day burrow. As long as we can keep gas in it, we'll, we'll get down the road easily. <laughs> you were trying to live off the land. Yeah. So to set this up for the, the few people who listen to Slow Baja and don't know your story, your attempt was to walk the perimeter of right. the Baja Peninsula. Yeah, at, that, that was always coast, my goal. Always all the way around the coast. coast. That Three. was my security. If I was by the coast, I could use my stills. Uh, occasionally, I had to go inland because of the cliffs or whatever. And that's almost invariably when I got to a point where I thought I could die here. This is really scary. So if I could stay by the by the water, I would, which meant walking on the rocks, uh, walking on the sand which there was no easy walking on the coast <laughs> carrying 80 pounds and occasionally I'd, I'd slip you know especially at the beginning I, I fall quite often fall pretty hard but at the end of the trip I, I was like a cat I couldn't uh, you know or a I, goat or a goat yeah. yeah I was very good at walking on wet slimy rocks and um, carrying my pack well when did, did you when did you decide you needed a break and how did that how did that thought come in and and well up to the point where like I really I need to stop it wasn't planned I thought I'd just walk all the way around exactly but then I got the idea let's change coasts and it was it seemed very appropriate at that point if I'm going to change coasts 
you know, time a week doesn't matter, two weeks doesn't matter. This is going to take you know a while. I would at that point decide to go back. So I did it three times. I went back to uh, San Diego or Los Angeles. It was at the time, and um, re-equipped. My equipment was torn apart. My boots were falling apart. I went through seven pairs of boots on this trip. So occasionally I'd go back, re-equip, and uh, um, at that point I'd change over and go over to, to say, the Pacific from, from the Gulf to deal with the hotter weather. And this entire time that you're on this walk, you're living hand-to-mouth, essentially, cleaning up. Uh, you cl- cleaned up Blondie's camp for 100 bucks. <laughs> yeah, 100, the the 100 lowest bucks. point and maybe the highest point, I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah, it was, that it sounds like it sounds awful. like a lot of money. <laughs> I guess it was. Well, you're down to bucks. what? Yeah, you're down to like ten bucks or something. Oh, I was down to yeah, probably nothing. A couple yeah. of bucks. Yeah, right. Enough money for tortillas and maybe a few beans or something. And so, really, you're you're living this entire time, picking up whatever you can pick up. You were sort of uh, van lifing before van lifing was a thing. <laughs> you were, you had your pack and your tent, and you were just making it up every day. And, and it worked. And it worked. Uh, that was the funny thing. When I was short of money, or I, I just thought, I've got to sit down and figure out how I'm going to deal, deal with this, the solution always came. It was uh, part of that religious experience. You think, what I've got to do is sit down, wish for something, and it would happen. I'm, I'm laughing. I'm wishing for a cold <laughs> beer, wishing for a topless lady to be over the next uh, hillock, and there she was. There she was, <laughs> yeah. But... You know, you were living off the land, yet what I find ironic, you're you're not a you're not a he-man mercenary type fella. You were squeamish about dispatching a lobster to make it your dinner. Oh, I was very squeamish about rattlesnakes, at which first. you also yeah. had to dispatch, or they were going to dispatch you. Right, and uh, I had to go through a little bit of a learning curve. Yeah, and it, uh, again, after a while, if you do it for a hundred days, it becomes very normal, and. I would see a rattlesnake, I'd be thinking, I'm fed up of eating fish. That snake would be in the frying pan before it knew it. And now I wouldn't dream of killing a rattlesnake. <laughs> but at the time, it was that was meat. There's plenty of them, so uh, I, I had no qualms about eating them. But at first, I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm eating a rattlesnake, and this is dangerous, killing this thing. And um, So definitely my uh, outlook changed. Well, what was that Napoleon quote? Uh, I think it was a Napoleon quote that you had in the book. The key to victory is to throw yourself at it and see what happens. And and that's so true. Throw yourself in and see what happens. And so many people defeat themselves by never trying. I figured that out. I'd done it all my life. So you just think, oh, I'm, I'm not good enough or I, I'm not strong enough. And uh, once I realized you just go in, you go for it, you'll probably succeed. Well... Graham, it's a recurring theme in your book. You managed to walk over how many years again? It was two years. Two years. It's uh, almost exactly two years by the time I got to Cabo and finished the trip. You ate rattlesnakes. You managed not to get killed by one. <laughs> Scorpions, black widows, Got stung stingrays. a few times, yeah. And never got a stingray sting. I was very careful about my stingray shuffle, yeah. Never been stung in 40-some years. And uh, I hear so many people just, they're not aware like I was of, of the dangers and uh, uh, you know I, I've had probably six scorpion stings in 40 years so I don't think that's too bad 
Well, walk us through some of those highlights and, and lowlights where you were really down in the depths of despair and then those brief moments or maybe they were lasting moments of just highlights. Yeah, the, the, the despair came right at the beginning. Funny enough, before I'd even taken one step, I thought, I just cannot handle this. And uh, anybody who reads that book will know I'm in San Felipe and I'm almost in tears. If I wasn't in tears, thinking I've got all this publicity, all these people expecting me to do this, I can hardly pick up my pack, never mind walking on the beach in the sun. So um, it was it was depressing. That first few days I had to get through. Um, the, the, most of the uh, adventures after that were over so quick. It was not, it's not like a stress that you build up like in modern living. You see a rattlesnake, you get attacked by a rabid animal, something happens and it's over. And you either survive or you don't. And usually I survive, obviously I survive. But um, uh, there, there, was, there was stuff I had to deal with, but nothing like uh, the depression. I actually came to enjoy the trip, appreciate the beauty. And I felt very privileged that, God, I'm looking at all this cactus and this beautiful coastline. I got it all to myself, fantastic beach combing. Uh, you know, it was, just, it was just amazing. I felt very privileged to be there. Um, some of the highlights, well, God, there were just so many. Uh, we talked on about one, the, the people I met. I might have been a week alone, but when I did finally meet somebody, it was usually wonderful. I mean, everybody I met, I just thought, what great people they are, and you got time to know them and appreciate them and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, highlights, uh, the whole trip was a highlight after about uh, a month. And did you ever find yourself becoming fluent in Spanish? Because Spanish was a problem. I learned maybe a hundred words uh, and th th I could get by. You could get by. Yeah, my grammar and uh, the conjugations, I n I've never figured that one out. <laughs> but I, I get by and I, I'm very lazy. And I think I'm a bit dyslexic too. <laughs> so learning Spanish does not come easy for me. Well, we're going to kind of put it in high gear here and um, get off of the the, the walk. I, I do want to, I, I can't, I've got some notes here and I just can't... Um, can't help myself. Uh, the first Mexican will stop. I've got that note here. The first Mexican will stop. You you were hitching a couple of times on this trip, right? And yeah, well, usually when I'm returning to the states right. or something like and, that, yeah. And so now you're really um, relying on the kindness of strangers, and yeah. the strangers who had the absolute most who had the absolute most in common with you, who you looked like to some degree. Just, right. Just I probably looked poorer than they did at times. Just powered on by. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, I thought you were going to say the and, Mexicans. Yeah. And then the first the first Mexican will stop. Yeah. And that, that was something I noticed. that The, the, the bigger the motorhome, the, the, the fancier the rig, the less likely somebody is to stop. And but the, the poor people who have to... Uh, figure out how to fit you in the vehicle and uh, move the load and all that. They're going to stop. They're going to take the time. They're going to fit you in. And uh, that was 
eye-opening. Three people in the front seat, nine people in the back of the little pickup truck running on three cylinders and two bald tires. Right. They're going to give you the ride. There there was one downside to that. In the book, I I got a ride. uh, I was returning to Bayer de Los Angeles to pick up there, and uh, I got a ride near to Cardi, and these people overturned their pickup. I was in the back, and there was, I think, about four of us in the back, and there were three up front. They just took a curve way too fast and next thing I know I'm sliding down the road at 50 miles an hour watching this pickup overturning in front of me praying nothing's going to land on me and again it's all over you know you don't have time to worry about it and I'm finding myself in the middle of the road thinking oh my god my equipment's scattered everywhere I'm still you know I've got a couple of bruised thumbs or whatever but I seem to have got away with this and I gathered up all my equipment, and uh, I remember the, the seven other people in, in that pickup. By the time I got back to the pickup, they'd all disappeared. I have no idea to this day where they went. There's the vehicle, there's me, and all the local ranchers are coming down thinking I was driving this thing, and they're, they're all saying, you're crazy, you went around this car. And I, I remember thinking, this is not good. I'd just set off from San Diego, and I was working my way down, I went back to San Diego to make sure I was okay, presumed upon some hospitality of some great people who looked after me, and a couple of days later, uh, I was convinced there's nothing amiss, and um, I set off again, (laughs) sticking my thumb out at the same spot where I got that previous ride. Well, you, you you made the walk. Tell me a little bit about the end, and realizing that the end was nigh, and you had to deal with that. Well, the, the the last four months, I had a burrow with me, and the end coincided Bonnie. with the end of that Bonnie the burrow, yeah. And um, I, I walked down uh, the Pacific coast from San Ignacio, where I bought Bonnie for thirty dollars. And uh, You're so rich now. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I think I'd written a couple of articles, and I thought, well, I can invest now in uh, burrow. So uh, I got to Cabo and I remember thinking I did not want the trip to end. What a difference from the beginning where I didn't feel like I don't even want it to start. And I just very slowly walked down the coast and I was thinking, this is, what I'm seeing now, I camped right on the beach in Cabo in, in the 80s and I was thinking this is going to change. Already I could see development from a year before and I knew that Cabo was selected to, to just boom and I remember walking into uh, Cabo thinking wow I've, I've spent two years on this trip it's um, been an estimated 3,000 miles I've walked um, I've got my burrow companion here and I feel really happy I feel happy with the people I've met and I'm in great shape and I, I just got to the end of the trip and it was like uh, um, a religious moment. I just th- looked back on the calling and going ahead with it, even though I had my doubts, and it all worked out. So I had a lot to think about. I had a lot to meditate about when I was sitting on the beach there in Cabo. And immediately, the funny thing was, what, what do I do with this burro? And my amigo, beautiful white burro, and a gelding, friendly guy, and... Uh, um, I remember I was sitting on the beach and this guy came along and he said, I've got a restaurant uh, just up the, the coast there, just up the beach, and uh, I'd like to buy your burrow. 
is it for sale? And I said, well, how, yeah. And, and he said, well, I've, I've got $30. Is that enough? So I recovered the $30 from that burrow. Uh, that, that was the kind of uh, happening that went on through the, through the whole trip. That uh, you, you can't predict it. You can't uh, imagine this working out. But it all worked out and right then, to the end. And then you had to find the time and the inspiration and get through whatever doubts and problems that occurred to actually sit down and write it so how did you do that and where did you do that well there's something very uh focusing about suffering for two years i knew i was going to write that book i knew i had a a real adventure and i I knew there was going to be an audience for this but you were not a uh a published well you were a published writer but you were not a prolific writer of books at this stage i've written a few articles for mexico west and a few newspapers um but, uh, yeah, I, I hadn't written a book. I Take know, me through that process. Well, the, the interesting thing is before I did the trip, I went to every publisher in, in London, in, in England. I wrote to them and uh, asked them would they like to do a book on my trip. And, of course, they all said no. Or a couple said, well, if you survive, let us have a chance to see it. And uh, at the end of the trip, I won that award, the Adventurous Traveler of the Year Award. And that made a big difference because suddenly a lot of publicity and um, all kinds of uh, magazine editors are approaching me. And I remember uh, I got a letter from uh, the book company, which was Unwin Heimwin in, in London. And they said, we'd like to do a book of your trip. So I said, great, great. And I already had a letter of rejection from them from the first time. They said, no, we don't think this story's gonna work. So I went down and signed the contract and after I'd signed the contract, I showed the editor this letter saying, this, this is not going to work. We laughed about it, but um, uh, yeah, it all just fell into place. And I got the book published. It came out um, in 88. Wonderful process, great publishing company. Um, they were very kind and supporting. And uh, um, yeah, Into It As A Place suddenly became real. And yet any sensible person would have said, this guy's never going to live. He's never going to write a book. It's, it's too fantastic. And it, it all happened. And so did you sit down in your parents' home with a I, typewriter I, and type I, away on this? I 1988? Of, it's not real computers it, yet. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in, uh, in Los Angeles with my friends and uh, maybe six months there. And I was writing everything I could. I was close to Glendale College. So I went over to the, the library and they had a pretty good Baja collection. So uh, I was able to do quite a bit of research there. And then I went back to England for maybe a year. I went back to live with my parents who were glad to see me alive, I think. So uh, again, I could go to the British Museum and research Baja and the pirates, the British angle to um, Baja history. And uh, I had enough information. I I spent my time uh, putting this book together. And yeah, I think the first uh, computer I had uh, to write this thing, a word processor basically, it was a one line screen and with that I was so enthralled I thought oh my god this you is You hit terrific. return and then it... Yeah, I, mean, I don't have to use a typewriter, this is wonderful, I got a line to correct this. Kids who are listening today, Graham did not have a cell phone in his pocket that could locate him anywhere no GPS. No GPS, nothing He oh. had to think about each word and spell it correctly. Right yeah, that's right. No spell check. It was, uh, but it was very interesting. It definitely worked. 
that I could write the book on that machine, yeah. And so the book came out? The book came out in, yeah. Did you have your 15 minutes of fame? Oh, I think more than 15 minutes. I did a lecture tour in England, probably 300 lectures, and um, I was uh, doing all kinds of radio shows and major publishers, so they put me on with uh, a lot of publicity and uh, television and everything. So I, for a while in England, I, I, I was uh, telling everybody about Baja California. <laughs> and did you have a shtick? Did you have some uh, some Baja clothing, some sandals, some something that you put on to make you look the part? Oh, yeah, or were I, you st just... I still had my um, still. Mm -hmm. uh, still had so your still? I, I still had that to show. I had um, my pet rattlesnake which I still have. Right, the stuffed rattlesnake that made the entire trip with made you. Made the entire trip in my backpack, yeah. Um, and uh, what else did I have? I had, I had a, uh, not a GPS, but I had an emergency beacon that I could have activated. It was a one-off shot. And if I really got into trouble, uh, I could have activated that. And I never used it. Um, and uh, I still had that to, to show. Well, I, I actually returned the live unit to the company at the end of the trip, and they sent me a dummy unit for uh, demo purposes. Um, yeah, just uh, lots of photographs to, to share, and uh, I was very blessed, because even though I was using a film camera, and I didn't have a lot of film, I was very blessed that the, the pictures I took told, told the story pretty well. And so what happens when you walk into a pub and... London and sit down in 1989 or 1990. <laughs> well, probably nothing. I mean, do you, there's you, too many you crazy get, English you get a, people. <laughs> a beer and you start talking about this place that nobody even knows about? No, no, How did you keep that inside after you did it? Oh, I, I'm a pretty quiet kind of uh, person. I like my anonymity and uh, it was very easy. And I didn't spend that long in, in, in England. I was itching to go back to Baja. So once the book was published, um, my publisher didn't have uh, the rights to publish in the United States, or they never had an outlet for it. So I decided I'm going to buy the U.S. rights to this book and publish it myself. So I brought out a hardcover, um, paid for it myself. And uh, uh, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, but uh, um, brought out, yeah. And work-wise, what were you were you working a regular job? Or no, do you that, just, that became my life. That was it. That You're was it. Telling people about Baja and, and yeah, I did a selling lot of books that. and went, went to a lot of schools and told them about my trip and uh, so I was able to use my educational experience and my goal to uh, tell people, young people, this is what you can do and um, yeah, that became my life. I became think. a motivational speaker. I guess so, yeah. Talking about Baja. Yeah, I, I'd like did to you, think so. When did you make the move to decide that Baja was going to be the place that you were going to live? And was that economics uh, only, or was uh, it no, love? No, it was, uh, I, I was itching to go back. I just thought, what, what am I doing in London? What am I doing in all this traffic or near London? And uh, I thought I could be in Baja, I could be fishing, I could be seeing you know, whale sharks and all this. And so I, I very quickly went back and um, started doing trip after trip and uh, just spending as much time as I could in Baja writing about it and making a living like that and um, I never got rich didn't have to get rich I'd been around this mentality that what do I need money for as long as I got enough to pay my bills um, I'm happy and 
So I sacrificed everything, not that it was a big sacrifice, to stay in bar. Well, you, you, you're driving a car that looks relatively new. You've got clean clothes on. <laughs> you know, yeah. you look like you're doing all right. Well, I just got to my 70th birthday, so I think uh, uh, May 19th. Social Security really helps. <laughs> I, I just I read in the book, May 19th was your birthday, and right. we, are, uh, we are recording, uh, what, here on the 25th, so about a week into your right. seventh decade. And last night I had my birthday party, and uh, thanks to a good friend, and, um, I got a bottle of tequila in the car ready to go. Well, the next time we see each other, we'll be in Baja, and I'll have a, a fine bottle of Fortaleza to share with you. Oh, my God, I hope you. I stay coherent. <laughs> well, we, we don't have to drink the whole thing at once, but we can try. <laughs> uh, Graham, I um, am delighted you made some time for me today. Um, I posted up on uh, Facebook this morning that I was going to see you and uh, asked if people had some questions for you. So I'm going to pull up my Facebook right here while we're talking and see... See who has a question to ask okay. Graham. So if you've got a few more minutes, I'll go, we'll, we'll jump into the lightning necessary. round. All right. So let's take a look. We're not... Uh, um, C.J. Frost, young C.J. Frost. Um, what are some of the things that you saw walking that would be missed? Well, he's... he's uh, He's asking about your mode of transportation and my mode of transportation. So I drive this 50-year-old Land Cruiser. Uh, CJ wants to know, what are some of the things that you saw walking that would be missed while driving an old Land Cruiser? So I recently, in the end of January of this year, drove basically your route all the way you know, down the East Coast and up the West Coast uh -huh. and staying as close to the coast as possible on, on both ways. But it's not like you where you're clamoring over rocks and... Uh, skittering through coyote trails and whatnot. So yeah. you know the road well, um, the old roads. I was on dirt as close to the coast as possible. What? Do you, let's ask C, answer CJ's question. What do you see where you are at well, your speed versus I, 20 miles an hour in my I Land like, Cruiser? I like going at that speed. And uh, the reason I do is you see so much stuff that you'd never see in a car mostly wildlife and uh, you know rattlesnakes scorpions you drive right by those <laughs> but uh, you get very close to the to the bugs to the to, to the plants and, um, and and as a spiritual dimension I don't like being around noise I don't like being around fumes and most modes of transport including pangas is noisy it's fumey and uh, I like to be walking or in a kayak and uh, you just see so much more so it takes time, you know, not everybody can do it, but I paddled the whole length of the Sea of Cortez to La Paz, going probably at walking pace, and you see so much. You see so much wildlife in the ocean on shore and deer and coyotes. and um, that, that to me is the way to go. That's the way to see Baja. Can we make a pact right now that you'll tell me about that on a future Slow Baja podcast? Oh, absolutely. All right. With, with pictures. <laughs> Terrific. Um, Gabe, uh, I'm going to butcher the last name here, Gabe Erives, uh, why is it important to engage and immerse yourself within the culture of Baja California's people? What can we stand to learn from those living in remote towns or ranches, and how do we apply those lessons to our daily lives? Yeah, I think that's a good question because so many uh, people, they only see the towns and the cities and you get a, 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 an experience from that. If you're out in the middle of nowhere, you see 
really a much more authentic uh, experience with the people. And um, that that's something I would treasure because it's a very different experience. In town, you know, fair enough, it's commercial. Everybody's trying to make a, a buck and a living and you're going to run into crime and all the rest of it. The kindness and hospitality in the middle of nowhere and the trust and uh, all, all that stuff is just heartwarming. And uh, the people of Baja California, they have a tradition of hospitality that should be celebrated. It's probably one of the finest in the world. And uh, I, I was the beneficiary of that. So that that's my main um, take from all my travels in Baja is I'm avoiding towns, I'm avoiding the highway, and uh, I'm enjoying the authentic experience and people who are just kindness that comes second nature to them and they got time for you whereas in the towns and on the highway pe people don't have time it's quite a quite a, co a contrast I think that's uh, that's an important uh, touchstone there of time and that I find that just coming from California going to Mexico even the people in the towns have a lot more time for you than than a we have for each other here absolutely but then you're making it making the the next leap to the people who are out on those ranches and they just it's not like they're sitting inside with the flat screen the ac on oh right it's not not, not like they're all Time hooked onto their cell phones and right. tvs they, they they want you to talk and be the entertainment for the evening and right uh, vice versa so we've covered this but we're going to ask it again here and you can say it ed hall wants to know how many pairs of boots did you go through well i went i went through seven i was on my last two when I finished the trip. So I had seven pairs of boots that uh, I went through and some of them, well, a lot of them were given to me. And, uh, you know, they, the rocks and the salt water and the sun killed boots very quickly. It was amazing how little use you'd get out of really expensive boots. So uh, seven pairs, yeah. And how about your knees and your ankles? A lot of sprained ankles, a lot of scuffed no, knees? No, I, I, no, I found, as long as I could survive that first few weeks where I was falling over like nobody's business, um, I, I got very good at walking on the rocks. I got very good. My body was in great shape. And uh, I, I was almost immune to injury. I'd cut myself and I wouldn't even think about it. Amazing. Uh, Brian Richard Smith wanted to know what happened to the donkey. He doesn't remember the name. That's Bonnie, which we covered, and you, you sold Bonnie at the end of your trip. <laughs> yeah, to a Mexican restaurant. And you broke even. Uh, well, and he wasn't, was, they weren't going to eat Bonnie. Well, this he was is just going to be an this attraction. This is what I, actually, I thought about afterwards. I thought, 30 bucks, maybe that is uh, burritos. But I, I went to the restaurant, and uh, he was outside with a hat on and his ears sticking through a hat. And he was a tourist attraction to add some ambiance to the rest. So Bonnie got a, a nice retirement. Bonnie got a really happy retirement, yeah. Uh, my friend Christopher Scott Reddish, who's a real Baja aficionado, he said if there was only one place, if there were one place only you could be transported back to, to see, absorb, or experience again, where would that place be? Well, it's got to be Bahia de Los Angeles. And it's very accessible. It's only a day's drive from the border. But uh, every time I go there, you've got so many islands and uh, so much desert and cactus. Um, that's become my go-to place for the last 20 years. Every chance I get, I go there. I like kayaking there. I just um, 
came back from several trips. I went out to Guardian Angel Island, which is the big island uh, protecting uh, L.A. Bay. But uh, I, I was out there for three, three recent trips kayaking, two weeks on each trip. I didn't see anybody. <laughs> it's that remote. So um, although it's a nice, pleasant town, around it is just absolutely amazing, north, south, inland, or out to the islands. And um, I just keep going back there. I've, every time I go to somewhere in Baja, the memories keep flooding back. I just returned from Puerto Lopez Mateos. I hadn't been there for since the trip. And I just, again, I started meeting people I'd met 40 years ago and thinking, this, this is amazing. I really enjoy this place too. So two, two interesting sides of the country, uh, of the peninsula, Bahia de Los Angeles on the uh, inland north side. Uh, I've only spent a, a minute there recently on this last trip um, went to see Roger and Carol Mears mm-hmm. and it just it, it just struck me you know and and Taro Diaz and the um, the glory days that they had when people were flying right into downtown downtown once one street right? right when people were flying into Baja those glory days that Bahia de Los Angeles has and it just seems a little bit I don't want to say down on its heels but a little bit forgotten now and you're yeah. really finding some beauty there Oh, absolutely. Lopez Mateos is a a pretty quiet place as well. Yeah. So tell me about that a little bit. Uh, We're going to expand on Christopher's question. Tell me a little bit about that area of the Baja Peninsula. Well, obviously it's a Lopez Mateos and and that that sort of quiet area there. Yeah, it's a whale destination. So a lot of people know of it. It's um, Magdalena Bay. Mm -hmm. But um, I went out there, met some friends who I'd met 40 years ago. And they invited me back, and I'm really glad I went. I had a wonderful time. And went out to the, some of these barrier islands. I can't remember the na- name of the island now, but maybe Margarita Island or something. It's a barrier island. Uh, went out there, and I just thought, this is so beautiful. You know, we were gathering shellfish out there for uh, to put in the garden. And I, I thought, oh, man, if I was just out here wandering around beachcombing, I'd be, I'd be in heaven. Um, and the people were great, and... I, it brought back memories of me um, going through that area and leaving. I remember my camera broke down in 1984, I think it was, and I had to leave my burrow uh, at the IMSS, IMSS, the Social Security uh, building there, and I hitched down to La Paz hoping I can get my camera repaired. And of course I did. It was a miracle that they could repair a Konica camera. And I'm really glad they did because I took some great photos afterwards. I was down to one camera at that point. And, um, yeah, it was all coming back to me. Great, great memories. So, and Bonnie was fine. Somebody looked after Bonnie oh, while you yeah, were away. Social Security there was looking after <laughs> Bonnie. And Bonnie did good. And, you know, a funny thing I should say, um, I'm divorced now, but I got married. Uh, and the girl I married, uh, her name was Bonnie. <laughs> and the borough was called Bonnie. So. Well, we'll get into that in a later podcast, Graham. Uh, last question here from Facebook. David Keir, your old friend, what was the power that Baja had on you which caused you to abandon your life in the UK and change your entire future? Well, I, I touched on that. I think it's uh, the, the fact that it's not London. You know, London's like 9 million people or whatever it is. Traffic, uh, crime, you got all this stuff going on and... Uh, when I, when I discovered Baja, open roads and beautiful uh, cactus, mountains, deserts, islands, and fishing, and 
great people. I just thought, wow, th th this is something I, I, I want to be a part of. And slowly I, I did become a part of it. Just made it, made it happen. But uh, I still feel that when I go down there. I mean, I know it's busier than it's, it's ever been and it's getting busier, maybe not in this year of COVID, but in other years it's been uh, developing. But where I go, there's still so many places that are in the middle of nowhere. Like, as I say, my last three trips, two weeks each, didn't see anybody. That, that to me is... And you mean didn't see anybody? I literally did not see... Well, I saw Panga's way out. I didn't right. speak to anybody. It's right. probably more accurate. Yeah. Didn't get close to anybody. But um, that to me is just... In this crowded world, that is unbelievable. And at the same time, you've got fantastic fishing. You've got whales. You've got dolphins. You've got all kinds of stuff happening right there, especially if you're on a kayak. And uh, what a treasure. And How many I think, places like that are left in the world? Well, I think, and most importantly, you have friends there now and community. Yeah, and memories and uh, all that factors in, yeah. Well, Graham, we're going to wrap it up. You've been incredibly generous uh, with some time this morning, and I really do hope we can work through the rest of your uh, library on future visits. Um, if people want to find you on the Internet, you're pretty easy to find. What What's the best way? Well, Facebook, I'm a real presence on Facebook because every time I do a trip, my first thought is I want to publish these pictures before I die. So, yeah. so I, I usually publish quite a bit on Facebook. And that's Graham McIntosh. With a K. Yeah, M-A-C-K-I-N-T-O-S-H. Yeah, yeah, most people think I'm a computer, but yeah. uh, it's M-A-C-K. M-A-C-K. Uh, I do have a, um, uh, a website. Um, I should update it more often, but... Uh, Nobody Graham, goes to websites anymore. GrahamMcIntosh.com. It'll be in the show notes. Okay. And this, this year alone, I've published eight Kindle books, e-books. Um, Travels with Patty mainly, right? Well, I, I found it almost a year ago on my birthday. I found this huge teddy bear on the beach in Bay de Los Angeles. And that's become part of my life. And so far, his family has grown to four teddy bears. Amazing. <laughs> and they go with me kayaking or uh, kayaking or whatever. So hiking, um, just return from the San Pedro Martir, the mountains, and they were camp with me. So, yeah, bears have taken over my life. They're so cute. <laughs> well, what's next for you, Graham? Where are you headed? Uh, well, I live in Baja now. Right, you're heading so, back. We're in San Diego, so you're I'll, heading back soon. I'll probably head back today or tomorrow. Um, and after that, I, uh, I'm planning a trip maybe up north to Yellowstone, but I, once the summer's kind of ticking ticking through, I'm looking forward to getting back to Baja. If I go in the summer, I usually go up in the mountains now, and I've got great memories of the Parque Nacional San Pedro Martir. That is really beautiful up there, great so, trees. Si and Since we're talking on the cusp of summer here, it's the end of May, um, do you have some summer favorite spots when it's so hot in most of Baja? Where are some places that well, people be... can travel to now as, as the world is opening up a little bit? We're getting past COVID. I think yeah, well, I think the, things may actually open for Coast real. is a big destination in the summer, as it, as it was on my trip. Um, but the, the mountains, um, it might be 100 degrees down below in San Felipe. You're up in the mountains, it's perfect. It's 75, 85, and uh, if, you, if you go now, you, you, like I just returned, my water bottle was freezing at night, 
which is so high, it's 9,000 feet where I was camping, or close to nine. And um, in the summer, it's, it's, you know, July and August, it's a bit warmer, but uh, it's a terrific old growth forest up there, wildlife, animals, great hiking. Um, I, I could just spend weeks up, which I have. I spent four months up there for my third book. I wrote a book about that. Um, so, yeah, that's mountains in the Pacific covers a lot of Baja. All right. Well, Graham, we're going to leave it right there. Thanks again for making some time for Slow Baja, and I really look forward to seeing you in Baja for our next talk, uh, where we'll go through the rest of your library one by one. It'll be like Johnny Carson. You'll just be a regular <laughs> guest. Every other uh, month or so, we'll be sitting down for another conversation with Graham about where he's been and what he's written. So well, thanks again, Graham. I'll look forward to it. Thank you, Michael. All right. Cheers. Have I told you about my friend True Miller? You've probably heard the podcast, but let me tell you, her vineyard, Adobe Guadalupe Winery, is spectacular. From the breakfast at her communal table, bookended to an intimate dinner at night, their house-bred Azteca horses, Solomon the Horseman, will get you on a ride that'll just change your life. The food, the setting, the pool, it's all spectacular. AdobeGuadalupe.com for appearing on Slow Baja today, our guests will receive the beautiful Benchmark Map 72-page Baja Road and Recreation Atlas. Do not go to Baja without this, folks. You never know when your GPS is going to crap out, and you're going to want a great map in your lap. Trust me. A lot of you have asked how to support the show. Well, you can go to slowbaja.com, buy yourself some merch, click that donate button, drop a taco in our tank, and always share the show with a friend. Give it a five-star review on whatever app you listen to, and I will see you next week.